Hey, folks, if you've been listening to our show, you've probably heard Victor talk about Hillsdale College. It's one of the few colleges in the U.S. still interested in teaching truth. What you probably didn't know is that they have over 40 free online courses. And Victor is one of the professors in three of those courses, American Citizenship and its Decline, based on Victor's book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America, The Second World Wars, based on his book by the same name, and Athens and Sparta, partly based on his book, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War. Don't you wish Victor would have been one of your professors in college? Well, now you can join him as he covers some of the main ideas of his books with Hillsdale College's online courses, all available for free. That's right, for free. The courses are seven to nine episodes long, and they are self-spaced, so you can take them whenever and wherever. I think I'm going to start with American Citizenship and Its Decline, where Victor explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state, and the rise of globalist organizations. Hey, start your free course with Victor Davis Hansen today. Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. hillsdale.edu slash vdh. Hello and welcome to the Victor Davis Hansen Show. Victor is a scholar, columnist, essayist, and author of agrarian and political culture, a contemporary critic of society, and we turn to VDH for contemporary commentary on the news. So welcome everybody. I would like to remind you that Victor is also or perhaps most importantly, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Today we're going to look at some news. This is our Friday show. So we have Biden this week at the border in a in the manner of speaking. And we have some renaming of military bases, and those will be the first two things that we look at after these messages. Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, They've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash 
Victor, TNUSA.com slash Victor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, Never Frozen Meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. What are you waiting for? For our listeners, Factor is giving you 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month when you use the promo code VICTOR50 at factormeals.com slash VICTOR50. Choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Remember, to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month, head to factormeals.com slash Victor50, that's V-I-C-T-O-R-5-0, and use the code Victor50, that's code Victor50, at factormeals.com slash Victor50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Welcome back. And Victor, I often ask how you're doing and how's the water situation in California. Maybe, you know, I said we were going to talk first about Biden at the border, but maybe we should talk first about the California water situation. Maybe we can. uh, I, I have some questions like who's making the choices on when and where to store water. And, you know, it's because it seems like they're not filling our reservoirs for anybody who drives the California freeways. Those reservoirs still seem relatively empty and yet lots of water going out into the delta and into the ocean, of course. So maybe we can start with your thoughts on California's water now that we have lots of it. Yes. Well, I know a lot of people are not residents of California. There's 40 million of 330 million only that are. But these issues have a lot to do with all of your lives because it's a classic situation of the unelected making decisions that are going to affect the livelihoods of millions of Americans outside of California because this is the richest agricultural sector in the entire country. And we've been in three years of drought where they've essentially had to pump from enormous depths on the west side of the Central Valley. And now we have one of the wettest Novembers and Decembers and early Januarys in history in California. This is especially ironic because we were told that we were in a permanent drought and we wouldn't see a year like this due to climate change. And we were lectured there was really going to be no more farming on the west side of California because the reservoirs were empty and they, what water was transferred from the north would have to go to municipal usages in San Jose, Los Angeles, Santa Barbara, etc. And then suddenly, the forecast this year were to be very dry. And then we had a, a storm in late November, and then we had a storm in mid-December. And it's been raining for two weeks, off and on. And the result is we're, oh, I don't know, 190 to 220% of our precipitation at this time of the year. 
And just a reminder how it all works is that two-thirds of the people live where one-third of the precipitation, either in snow or waterfalls. And then two-thirds of the precipitation is only where one-third of people, roughly around Sacramento, north. There's nobody up there, just a third to a quarter of the population. But that's where all the, the precipitation is long, uh, uh, along with the Sierra Nevada. So Jerry Brown's father, Pat Brown, came up with this idea to match the Central Valley Project. That was a federal project of the Depression era to build dams and store water and transfer it in aqueducts and canals and even ditches to places that needed it. Very famous, you've all seen Chinatown. There's Los Angeles can only support about 5 million people with, it can only support, excuse me, about 200,000 people. And today it only gets about 15% of its water from its aquifer. So it, it went up to the Owens Valley, it tapped in Colorado River, uh, river water, and it was, if you ever go down on the so-called grapevine or ridge route, South of Bakersfield, you can see those pinstocks are the highest in the world, 2,000 feet. And they pump water from the California aqueduct into Pyramid Lake and into Los Angeles. What I'm getting at is this was a very brilliant engineered aqueduct system that our grandfathers built from roughly about 1962 all the way up into the 80s. And it connects two types of reservoirs, some in the Sierra Nevada and then some way up there through the American Feather and Sacramento Rivers, uh, Orville, Folsom. And that water then comes down eventually through the Sacramento River in huge quantities. And it hits the delta. The delta is that flat area directly east of San Francisco Bay. And it hits the influx of the San Joaquin River from the south. San Joaquin River is a much smaller tributary, but the two combine to make this floodplain. Some of the richest farmland in the world, but you can't farm it with this flood. So what happened is these rivers were diverted into sort of an estuary, and on the back end, the southern end, there were pumps, and they pumped this water into this long aqueduct that goes all the way from the delta, all the way, as I said, down along the western side of the San Joaquin, Sacramento-San Joaquin Valley, all the way to um, basically the Tehachapi Mountains, the, the grapevine. And it has tributaries that go directly west. So they, there's before uh, the aqueduct even goes south, there are channels to go in to supply San Jose, Oakland, Palo Alto, Crystal Springs Reservoir. And then the water continues down, and there's this huge reservoir at San Luis, as you've seen on uh, those of you who drive over Pacheco Pass from the Interior Valley to the coast on 152, you see this in San Luis Dam and Reservoir. And that that's kind of like a bank. It holds the water as the aqueduct goes by. It pumps it into it and pressurizes it. And then it releases it to four or five million acres of farmland. And then it has tributaries as well, the Mendota Kern Canal and, and others. And uh, the point of it all that is California is a desert south, the, the, the bottom two thirds is a desert, and yet it's it's a garden. So right now, after three years of drought, what are we doing? You would think that all these reservoirs that were 10 and 15 percent full, there's 30 or 40 of them. They're huge. 
They can range from two or 300,000 acre feet all the way to three and a half million acre feet. We're not filling them, Sammy. So yeah, the know. water, so what, where's the water going? Is it melt snow or is it rushes down from these mudslides or mountains or it's going out to the Delta, but the pumps are not turning, turned on. So the water that's accumulating the Delta is going out to the ocean, nine million acre feet so far. Just these two storms, that's enough to fill the San Luis Reservoir almost four times. And yet the reservoir is not full. And they have a, a prescribed level of about 70% where they can't fill it any longer because they have to anticipate the snow melt. But they're down still to 40%. And so it wow. begs the question, why are they doing this? Yeah, and why are they? It's a political decision. Partly it's the environmentalists think that this is a golden opportunity to flush out uh, the San Francisco Bay Dash Delta area with fresh water and oxygenate it because there's 35 municipal waste uh, treatment plants on that uh, around the, the San Francisco Bay. Partly they feel that it will help the little Delta smelt. Partly they feel that this is sort of 19th century California. We've got water flowing from the mountains all the way to the sea and it's riparian and it's going to be ideal for the salmon runs at $50,000 for per planted fish. But I've never seen anything like it. It's a suicidal impulse. It's sort of like Germany shutting down all their natural gas plants and coal plants or Gavin Newsom shutting down two nuclear plants and just about ready to shut down Diablo Canyon until people said, wait a minute, we're going to be back into pre-civilizational America, if you do that, but it's emblematic of this left. And what I mean by that, they inherit this rich infrastructure and this technological know-how from really the apex of American civilization between 1950 and 1990. And in terms of California, they get this very this spider web of, of elaborately engineered uh, aqueducts and canals so that a place like uh, Cayucas or Morro Bay. They shouldn't exist, but they have the aqueduct water on a lateral. Santa Barbara shouldn't exist in its present size. It gets water. San Jose should not exist. It gets water. And Los Angeles, of course, shouldn't get water, but they pump it over. And we shouldn't have all of these 30 or 40 different crops all over California, but they get water. And it, it's just it's just stunning that you would shut this system down or not operate it diligently. The, yeah. the irony, it reminds me of that old S-71 super hypersonic plane that we built in the 70s. I don't think we could do it again. It was a spy plane. I don't think we have the expertise in this country, uh, in our engineering departments and our woke universities to replicate the amount of genius that took to design the system. And to see how it was to be operated, because it was never quite finished. And, you know, it was designed at a time of 16 million uh, residents of California. But when you read the initial master plans of the California Water Project and the Central Valley Project, you can see how brilliant they were. They, they had it in um, steps, schedules, iterations. This many reservoirs will handle this much population. When you get it all the way up to 50, 60 million people. But we just stopped. So the new Malona's Dam was, I think, 1983 was the last big agricultural type reservoir. 
And they understood what it was for. It was for flood control. It was for hydroelectric power. It was for recreation. And it was for irrigation. It was a win-win-win-win project. And we're just ossified. And you know what they're saying is they're saying, we were told this is climate change, climate change. See, it's drought. It's permanent drought. The, this state is just, it's in the, it's got carbon release gases and we've never seen in the first, we've never seen anything like it. And the first criticism of that is you don't know because you haven't had records since about 1850. You don't know what it was like in 1640 or 1430. You, your, all of your indices that you use have all been pretty much unreliable. So this is a new new environment. We don't know what's long and what's short term and what degree this man-made gas has actually changed the weather in California. But nevertheless, now they're saying it's climate change. See, we told you all these storms that we said would never come and never break through the high pressure barrier, uh, El Nino, El Nino, except they're here. And that's because of climate change. Because the, the, you got to understand that when there's a drought, it's climate change. When there is excessive precipitation, it's climate change. And you want to say to them, well, how many years in a row did California have perfect climate in the sense that every single year there was 21 inches in the Bay Area and 10 inches in the Central Valley exactly and there weren't mm-hmm. highs and lows. And yet, when each day in the summer, when you look at the highest temperature ever recorded in the, since 1850, it's always 1922, 1938, 1965, 99. And when you look at precipitation, the same is true. So it, it's kind of an ideology by scientists that are not scientific. And so they, yeah. they see all this. I, I think they're very... Um, perplexed by it, contradictory so, contradictorily so, because they think, wow, we, we told the public that there was going to be this permanent drought, we've got to shut down agriculture, we've got to go back to a pre-civilizational level of, of uh, activity, and then we got all this water, and we've got more water than we know what to do with. If we had, we could have three years supply. Uh, let's just let it go. Could I interrupt? Can I interrupt you then now that you've gotten to this part with the political question? I mean, isn't it a matter of our governor calling in the water department and saying, who's making this decision? And we, I want a different decision made. I want a decision to fill these reservoirs to the 70% yes, that we can get Yes, he could do to. that. And it's a joint project of the Central Valley projects, a federal project. So Joe Biden could say, federal government is a partner in this, and we want those pumps turned on right now. Yeah. Because you're getting so much more. Uh, water than you. you're at flood stage in the Delta right now. And we want that water into the aqueduct and we want every reservoir. We want the reservoir in Cayucas. We want the reservoir in Santa Barbara. We want the reservoir, uh, all the reservoirs and municipal reservoirs in Los Angeles. We want San Luis. We want them full to the brim. Yeah. Full to the brim. And uh, we could do it. And what, what's tragic is that the, the it wasn't it wasn't the um, it wasn't the California voting public that's to blame because they had voted. And I think it was uh, 2018. They had voted for a water bond, and if you that's look at right. that water bond, it was gosh, it was really good. It was 
it gave the funding, I think it was Prop, oh, I don't know what it was, Prop 68, and it had, you know, multi-billion dollars, and it was $4 billion for, I know I know they padded it with ecosystems and parks and all this stuff, but the, it was supposed to, Four billion was to of the eight billion was to be for reservoirs, and these reservoirs were not in in environmentally sensitive ground. There was one at Temperance Flat on the San Joaquin River, right behind Millerton Lake, where the Millerton Dam and the Friant Dam in Millerton Lake would have gone. It has about five hundred thousand square feet, but you would have had a million a million square feet at Temperance Flat as the San Joaquin river would have widened into a lake all the way up to Mammoth Pool. And then you would have had, wow. we already have this little site near the Los Banos Grandes. If you go down by the San Luis Dam down I-5, you see the beginning of it. That was going to be two and a half million feet, maybe three bigger than San Luis. And all you had to do was just dam it because it, there's nobody living there. And it's just a bunch of dry hills, and you could have used the aqueduct to fill the whole thing. Any year like this, that was the intention. On a wet year, you wouldn't have to to waste it all. You could just start banking it in these new reservoirs. And the biggest of all was the Sites Reservoir on the Sacramento River, not too far from Sacramento. And that would have been wow. It would have been it would have been really important. So what did they do with the nine the nine billion dollars? It's been almost five years. They did nothing. They did nothing. They didn't build one of these three uh, reservoirs that were allotted. They just tied it up in the courts. And then they diverted the money to all of these environmental causes and parks and waterway. By, I don't know what. It, it was just it's tragic. So we, we've spent eight. Yeah, I think we've is. already spent $4 billion of the money we borrowed on the bond. And there's no reservoirs, and now the water's going out, and they're saying, well, we don't have a reservoir. And it's climate change. We can't do anything about it. It's climate change. And so I, to take them at yeah. their word, you can say, well, Mr. Bay Area bureaucrat, so it's climate change when there is no water, and it's climate change when there's too much water. And if there was just right amount of water, would there be climate change then too? Apparently so. Yeah. Yes. Climate change has become a euphemism for F-U. That's what it is. Climate change, F-U. Excuse me. F-U, F-U, F-U. We don't have to listen to you. We don't have to listen to the bond. We don't have to listen to the voter. We don't have to listen to anything. We have the quote-unquote science on our part. And we're going to return California to a 19th century utopian, naturally utopian paradise. That's what their agenda is. Yeah. And then they're the funniest people in the world because you go into Palo Alto Whole Earth and guess what? They're swarming in there to buy their lettuce, kaylee, tomatoes, arctic, you name it. They love California potters, their plums, their peaches, their grapes. And yeah, they love it all very specialized, too, if you go yes, to Whole Foods. <laughs> they do, and it's very expensive. And you want to say to them, where did that come from? And yeah. who who grew it? And the, 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 I guess I, to finish this conversation, this rant, the listener should realize, all you listeners, so when we try to distill these questions to their essence, it's essentially this, that there is the farmer, and he gets up every morning. And he has no idea uh, whether he's going to get a crop in. 
So he cultivates, he fertilizes, he sprays, he watches that crop 365 days in that cycle. And he has to pay for insurance and he has to pay work, workers comp and he has to pay labor and he has to pay for supplies and diesel fuel and equipment. And he does all that without any guarantee that he's going to make any money. And so he becomes conservative. He becomes cautious. He becomes wary. He is glued to the weather report. He's glued to the commodity market report. He's There's nobody else but him. He, he doesn't have tenure. He doesn't have job security. He's not a, a, a creation of civil service. It's just him or her. And then he's contrasted with what? People like myself that have tenure. Or we get up in the morning, and I've done both, so I can. I think I'm in a pretty good position to tell you that each day that I got up as a full-time farmer was very different as a full-time tenured professor. It is. and But these civil servants, these biologists, these state resources managers, they have a pay scale, and they have promotions, and they have job protection, and they can say whatever they want, but they're not going to go broke. And they are the ones that have all the utopian ideas and the poor farmer on the other end lives out their night. To him, it's a nightmare. And everybody's dependent on the farmer. You take away half the state water resource board uh, and its employees, and I think we'd be fine. You take away the farmers in California and we'd starve. So that's the tension on it. And the farmers are just saying, just to honor the law. The law said we created the aqueduct. These were rights. These water districts have claims to aqueduct water if it's there. The pump should be on. We don't want anything else. The water's sky high. We can barely afford it, but we have a right to buy it from the state. Would you please give it to us and so we can grow food for you? And they're saying, nah, I don't think so. I'm more worried about a fish. I'm more worried about oxygen levels in the Delta. I'm more worried about uh, artificially reintroducing salmon. I kind of like the banks of the Sacramento and the San Joaquin to have riparian river life. And I'd kind of like to be what we hear about in 1860. That's how they think. Yeah. And when you get yeah, 99% of the people who are not farming, they're very susceptible to that. those dreams. Of, yeah. Now, well, Victor, let's go ahead and take a break and then come back and talk about what we started to talk about. I'm sorry I, I got that first, but we'll come back and talk about Joe Biden at the border and then some a little bit about renaming military bases and statues and such. We'll be right back. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup 
Your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion. Hunter Biden and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events, and you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe. Welcome back, uh, Victor. Um, so we had this week Joe Biden go down to the border and it looked like a nice little visit, some very pretty pictures. And I was wondering if you could give us your take on Joe Biden's border visit at El Paso, Texas. That was very funny because we have been, I mean, not all the networks, obviously, because they're sanitizing the news and they weaponize it. But there was enough news out there that you could see that El Paso was a mess. I mean, its streets were just full of people from south of the border. Who, And it was very funny because I, I, I still I still don't understand the, the mentality. It's so foreign that you you're in a you're in a foreign country. And you just get up one day and you say, that country over there, I'm going to enter illegally. And then I'm just going to crash on the sidewalk. And I just want people to give me stuff. And I have claims on that country. And my country is going to help me get there. And that, and so when you have that attitude and you have nothing but contempt for that country that won't enforce its own law, then five million crosses occur. I'm not saying there's five million individual people, but probably two and a half million. And they're all now they're all not all, but many of them are swarming El Paso. So Joe Biden was asked two weeks ago, did he want to go? To the I got better things to do. And then he changed. He wants to. Why go is to the that? Do you think? Yes. Why yeah. is that, Sammy? Let me count yeah. the ways. Let me count the ways. <laughs> Number one, Joe Biden said he is going to suddenly seek reelection. And some of his little political say, you know what? 65% of the Americans want that border closed. It's a mess. There is a, there's a drug cartel. There is a war right on that border. I mean, it's like what Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan are, were like all at once. It's deadly. They're shooting at airliners and these people are pouring across. You don't even know who they are. And somebody says, well, Mr. President, we can't even get people to get vaxxed and, and, and wear masks because you're letting everybody come in without those rules. And so there's all these pressures. And so he's saying, and then he talks to Ron Klein and the Obamas and, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie said, okay, we got to go back to the 2020 paradigm. I am good old Joe Biden now from Scranton. And I am a conservative, conservative Democrat. And I'm going to be a useful idiot for the hard left. But the deal, remember, is we made in 2020. I stay in my basement. I don't talk about politics. And you push your agenda through on my back. And then when I'm elected, you can be your left-wing selves. Okay. And that worked. So that's what he's doing now. 
So he's saying to us, the fools, I'm good old Joe Biden from Scranton again because I'm going to run for re-election. I'm shocked at the border. I'm shocked at the mess that I created. So I'm going to do something about it. So we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to and they're all nothing. And then what's even more insulting, he he goes and meets with these border people. Here's the border patrol and I'm Joe Biden. commander. And you want to think, well, wait a minute. You called all those people criminals. You said they whipped indigent uh, aliens that were coming across the Rio Grande with their horse on their horses. That was all a lie. And your internal and homeland security investigation found it a lie. Did you ever apologize to them? No. But now you want to be seen with them. And wait a minute. You're walking along a calm road, gravel-packed road, next to this impressive, towering, looming border wall that Trump re- had rebuilt of a rickety fence. And there's no, guess what? There's no aliens there. And how can you do that? That is so insulting to us because you said you were not going to build one foot. You cancel it. In fact, all the materials are rotting and rusting on the ground because you and everybody who's coming across the border is coming across where there's no wall. So why don't you get a photo op where there's no wall? But you won't do that. You want to have a photo op to show everybody how calm and control you are with the fence that somebody else made. And yet that's not enough. So before you got to El Paso, you had a problem. Everybody was furious at you. It was a mess. It was a horrible photo op, and yet you needed a photo op. So what did you do? You Somebody said, well, you know, I don't know if it's completely true, but in 1787, when Catherine the Great wanted to tour the Russian, uh, you know, eastern portions of the empire, and she told, she wanted to know if people could eat, they wanted to convince her everything was hunky-dory. So they went out and built these little face, false faces of buildings, and they called them after her minister, Potemkin. I don't know if it's completely true, but we get this term, the Potemkin village, of a house that only has a front on it. It's fake. Well, that's what they did in El Paso. They made a fake El Paso. They cleaned up every corridor that he was going to walk on to tell him that, you know, Joe, you're doing a pretty good job. The border's secure. And so that's what they're doing. And the second reason, of course, is it's not just that he's running, but the Republicans won the House. And one of the first things they said is they're going to have an investigation of Homeland Security. And the subtext is that they want to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas, who has opened the border wide open on the orders of Joe Biden. And he now wants to pose, hey, don't don't impeach me. I got the, a secure border. And so that is another reason. Another reason is, guess what? They are busing people to blue sanctuary cities. So the African-American constituencies in the Chicago suburbs and in Chicago say, don't bring these people here. The white upper class people in Martha's Vineyard, don't bring these people here. The governor of Colorado is saying, I don't want these people. And, and you want to say, well, wait a minute. You want them because you're all sanctuary cities, and when they commit crimes, you won't turn them over to ICE. And you're you're happy to let them in as long as they congregate on the border. And then they they get federal assistance and state assistance, and you take credit for it. And then their children and they, when they become naturalized, they all vote for you. But you don't want it. You like you love the idea in the abstract, but you hate it in the concrete. And that's why he is at the border. He's got a lot of pressure from his constituents. 
they call up Joe. I you know I gave you one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And have you have you seen what's going on out here? I live outside Boulder, Colorado. You you can't believe it, Joe. There's there's all these Mexican nationals, and some, they're all over the street. Or you know, hey Joe, I I gave you a lot of money, and I'm in. There's people, you know, this is La Jolla. This is La Jolla, Joe. And there's all people coming around. They're everywhere. They're on the road. They're everywhere. And you know, a guy. And I know a guy got hit in a car, and a guy just left the scene of the accident. You got to fix this, Joe. That's what's happening. With that, I rest my case. Yes, but what I think is that the people that you think are now all of a sudden telling Joe Biden that they're surprised shouldn't be surprised at all. Who wouldn't guess that five million people would do that? And not only that, that you we say, oh well, they're you know flowing over the borders and they want. Um, uh, social services, et cetera. And that's the least of it. Like what's flowing over the borders too is the war in Mexico going on. You and know? the drug, and, and the fentanyl. And the drug, yeah. And but, but their attitude is, remember the bi-coastal elite, and they're mostly wealthy white people that have a lot of money and they have pretensions that they're morally superior and better educated. The people who live in Cambridge, Mass, people who live in New Haven, the people who live in... I don't know, Alexander. Everywhere uh, that's not touched Chevy, by these immigrants. Exactly. Yeah. Palo Alto, Menlo Park, Montecito, all these places. Carmel. Their whole idea is that, yeah, for Utopia, you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet, but it's not going to be my eggs. So I'm going to fly my private jet and lecture you on climate change. I'm going to put my kids in you know, Montecito School or Mineral Park School or Castle A, but I'll give a lecture. You don't dare uh, buck the teachers' unions or start charter school. I'm, so I'm why like, now? Why are they then concerned Because it's now? starting, they're starting to find out that these governors in Texas and Florida and these red state governors are sick of it. So they are busing people to Kamala Harris's residence. They're doing it to Washington. They're doing it to Chicago. And they're doing it to Colorado. And they're picking places that are a little left. And these people said, wait a minute. I support illegal immigration in the abstract. But I do not want these constituents of mine anywhere near me. You saw the looks on the people's faces at uh, they were, you know, high-fiving them when they got out. We were so moral, we opened a little shelter. Yeah, they should come out here to Fresno County and see the underbelly of illegal immigration, believe me. And uh, I think what I'm going to do for the website is I drove into town yesterday and I saw two people unloading a huge couch and dumping it on the corner near me. And guess what? It's become a natural dumping ground. There are washing machines. There's car seats. There's wet garbage. It's growing and growing. It's kind of like Mount Everest now, right out there. And I could replicate that anywhere. And I can drive right over there. And I can tell you it's almost a shopping center on the the cross uh, roads. There are people not just selling Mexican soft drinks, homemade soft drinks, chocolate, but they're selling not just flowers, but they're selling tools and clothes, all without sales tax, all disrupting traffic. 
And that's that's what happens when you let in five million people or five million. And these people don't see it. But when they see one glimpse of it, it shows you that it really begs the question, what was their whole impulse in being left wing anyway? Was it they ever believed the left wing dogma? No, it was some weird psychological medieval exemption. So the louder that they sounded, virtue signaling and talking down to everybody and uh, airing their liberal fides, the more they could feel, I don't know, I don't want to be around those people. Mm -hmm. That's what's so strange about the whole thing. The conservative person who's on the forklift, the, the trucker, the farmer, he doesn't care. People are people because he's close to the earth. He's he's in the real world of muscularity. If he's out there, he's out there, you know, driving a tractor and there's another guy driving a crowd. He doesn't care what they look like. But you go into these little enclaves, these little white enclaves, and the only way that they want uh, poor people, and especially poor non-white people around them, is as housekeepers and, you know, groundsmen, nannies, cooks, caregivers. Yeah. And that's how they define their, their liberality. You put them in your community and say, you know what? As I keep saying, I bored our audience, but I wrote two columns saying that we had a 50-mile corridor to the ocean from basically, you know, on 280 from... San, I don't know, Redwood City exit on 280 all the way to South San Francisco. And you had the Crystal Springs Reservoir there for water. And you had a nice six-lane freeway. And you could have BART hooked up. And you could build a city of 500,000 low-income uh, condo high-rises for people so they wouldn't have to live in their garages and in trailers in, Red in Redwood Park to help, so quote-unquote, of Silicon Valley. I swear, Sammy, I have never in my entire life got such hate mail. I went to San Francisco and gave a lecture. It wasn't even on that topic. And two people showed up, very wealthy people, and they tried to rush me when I was giving the lecture. Screamed and yelled, yeah. you horrible oh person. You get, you have no business in our city. These people are very strange people. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, that's what that's about. Okay, well, let's then turn, let's stay on the Biden topic and go to um, the other news about him this week, which was the classified documents that were found in his um, house. A U.S. intelligence materials on the Ukraine, Iran, and Korea. I mean, this is no small thing. And uh, so, once again, how are they going to do anything about this Mar-a-Lago raid if Biden, as vice president, had those things in his house? Uh, well, they always story. find a way. So what they do is, so everybody remember what's happened. Mysteriously, inexplicably, eerily, <laughs> all of a sudden, after the midterm, we learned that there were people on the Biden staff who discovered that he had a trove of papers that was in an unsecure place from his vice presidential days at the Biden Center at the University of Pennsylvania, which was created in part, excuse me, in large part by a gift of over $50 million from the Chinese Communist government. And why would they give $50 million? dollars to the Joe Biden Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Well, you can just plug in Hunter and that explains it. But my point is this. <laughs> there was at least 10 documents they say 
and you know what that means, there's more that have classified information on things like Ukraine and Iran, and they're just sitting in there. Anybody can go into the Biden Center, there's a researcher, and find this stuff. That's how, probably why they were found. And the, so then the point is, Joe Biden, when he was asked by Scott Pelley on 60 Minutes after the Mar-a-Lago raid, he said, it's, it's just slop. It's just terrible. It is. Trump would do that. And remember what they said? There were nuclear secrets, nuclear codes, and they had all the papers on the floor. And most people suggested that the FBI made a little photo op by doing that. And the point was that they have a special prosecutor now to find Donald Trump, but they're not talking about nuclear codes anymore. That little bombshell, I guess, dissipated. So did uh, the nuclear secrets. But what is very interesting is I think Joe Biden just blew up the entire half of the special counsel prosecutor's um, agenda. Half of it, remember, was January 6th. And the other half was Mar-a-Lago. But I don't think you can prosecute an ex-president who de jure as a president in office has the right to declassify almost anything he wants. And maybe Trump didn't do it all in every case officially, but there is some suggestions he had that power. And then say that the sitting president who sent the FBI via Merrick Garland into an ex-president and and his former presidential rival in 2020 and a 50-50 chance he, he will be the next rival again in 2024. And you went after him politically to destroy him. And then you say that this is irresponsible for him to do that. And then it turns out the entire time you did that, you knew you and God knew that you had done the same thing, but with one big difference. You were vice president. You had no no prerogative, no purview, no right, no responsibility, no obligation to de declassify anything. You couldn't do it. So when you took that stuff that was uh, that was classified out, you knew you were breaking the law. Trump could always say, well, I, I just declassified it. There was a guy in the room. I just said, hey, it's declassified. Maybe a bogus argument, but it's an argument. There is no argument with the vice president. And so he suffers something beyond the wage of just hypocrisy. And he let it he let it out after the midterm. Remember what they do after the midterm. We learn what that Sam Bankman Freed is a Ponzi scheme artist. And he makes Bernie Madoff, in terms of the magnitude of his theft, look like a piker. And he's 90% of his money goes to Democrats. And we didn't know it till after the midterm, even though we know they knew it. We knew that they knew this about the presidential classified papers being wrongly stored by Vice President Biden. They knew that before. They knew that was going to get out before the midterms. They knew that a lot of the economic, economic data that they released uh, before the midterms would have to be altered. We know before the midterms, he said that he was going to quickly refill the strategic petroleum reserve, which he had drawn dangerously low for midterm advantage by hoping to put a million barrels a day to lower the price. And now guess what? After the midterms, Joe said he's not going to fill it. Can't do that. Oh, man. We're we got $1.7 trillion in uh, debt. So I, I kind of like the idea I was selling to all the oil companies right before the 
the midterm, million barrels a day. I didn't care whether they sold it to China, which apparently many of them took the money, the oil they bought and sold it to China. And then Joe Biden said, well, it doesn't matter. It's all fungible. It lowered the world price in time for me to uh, stand for my, my party's reelection. And now I can't, I can't, I can't buy that oil back. I can't buy it. I can't, you know, it's worth a lot of money. So I'm not going to, I'm not, I get no credit for it. I'm not going to put it back to where I found it. I found it, you know, 90% full. I got it down to about 35, 40. I'm not going to do that. I'm not stupid. That's what's what he's doing. He certainly is. Um, there certainly is a lot of hypocrisy going on that, once again, I think the population seems to miss. And so I don't, I, don't, I can't see them doing anything with the Mar-a-Lago rape. Um, information at this point. So that's probably a moot point. Yeah, I don't think they can get away with that. Um, You'll see the um, one thing we always know is uh, what's always interesting about these, you know, what about this issue? What about him? Is how the PolitiFact or the fact checkers or the Snope checkers, which are all left wing and they're not disinterested, but they're all partisan, how they try to spin it. So if you look at some of the facts, oh, don't suggest that the Mar-a-Lago trove is any way comparable to the Joe Biden trove. Uh, <laughs> no, it's not. One was a presidential and the other was a vice president. One had the right to declassify and the other didn't have any right at all. One of them was at Mar-a-Lago and it was at his own home. The other was at a university that was funded, a university think tank that was in existence because of $50 million in gifts from the Chinese Communist Party. But that won't that won't appear. I have yeah. a lot of empathy for the American people because they grew up on network news, New York Times, AP, Reuters, UPI. So they can't you can't just fathom all of a sudden that that doesn't exist anymore. You know what I mean? That's what you'd yeah. have to ask the American people. You'd have to say, listen, go look at any media center that's not biased. They will tell you the news is all slanted. Go on, uh, do any Google search, and you will find that the first 200 matches are all NPR, CBS News, New York Times. If you want to find the truth, it'll be some, you know, 10th page of, of, look at social media. You can't fathom that. It's just too gargantuan. There's no way. You have to be really hunt to find the truth. Yeah, and you've you've actually talked about your favorite websites in your hunt I for have. the truth. I, the power I, line is one, and real I, clear I politics have, is kind of. I have gradations. I do. I start with. I won't mention them. I don't want to give them publicity. But I read left wing to know what the left wing is thinking, and mm-hmm. then each morning, I try to do gradations. What is the standard Republican? Uh, conservative take on things. So I read the Wall Street Journal. And I, and the Wall Street Journal has gravitated, so its news division is almost indistinguishable from the Washington Post or New York Times. It's left. But the op-ed writers, Bill McGurn, Kimberly Strassel, Dan Henniger, they're very good. So you can get a lot of really good coverage. Uh, and then I, you know, I start... I still look at I look at Powerline, and I know I've made that plug before, but Steve Hayward, John Henniger, and Henniger and um, Scott Johnson are excellent, and that, that that's they have commentary and they list articles and it's very erudite analysis and it's not just raw raw stuff. 
I read the Fox News website, and then I try to go into a little bit more of the base. So I'll look at uh, the Daily Caller, the Daily Wire, Breitbart, right? Yeah. The, the hardcore, this is what. And sometimes they find stuff that you wouldn't believe is true, and the other people shun it, but it turns out to be true. So they were very good on things like the laptop and um guy a writer like i don't know who he is but john nolte wrote really he would he was writing stuff about the hollywood uh enforced racist dog that they wouldn't have uh racist actors i mean they wouldn't have black actors in movies for export in china things like that or he has some really good article this week about the untold story if you're a white male actor or screenwriter in hollywood you're in trouble you're not going to get work if you sound off about it, especially. And then I try to go to the other, and these, these are the explosive ones. And I would say more like Hot Air or Red State or, I know, Ace of Spades. Uh, I'm called, somebody said I was a lurker there, but they have, they have, the, the people that write there, they have a lot of braggadocio, but they're very, very erudite and smart people. And then I look at some substack columns. And so I try to just say, I want the wishy-washy view, the doctrinaire mainstream, the little edgy view, the real edgy, and then the speculation by very intelligent people. And I think if I aggregate that and do it with left-wing stuff, it takes me about two and a half hours every day. Wow. And of course, it, it starts to bother me. I think I could be reading Greek and Latin or brushing up on my, working on my book. But if you're going to write two columns a week and you're going to do some Fox News, you should, you should try to keep up with things. Or otherwise, you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. Well, Victor, let's go ahead and take a moment for some more messages and come back and talk about the renaming of military bases. We'll be right back. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. We're back, and um, the military has gone into and sort of are now on, you know, I don't know, in the process of renaming their military bases. They've taken down statues and uh, in their military bases and their academies. And I was wondering what the wisdom of this is or the lack thereof. What are your views on this? Well, it, it's kind of a, a there's a particular and there's a general point, I think. After the George Floyd uh, death, we there was something problematic before that 
that even though there were people of our past that bothered us according to our contemporary, if we were to apply our contemporary morality, we adjusted that for time and space. So everybody understood you didn't want, the Germans don't want statues of Hitler. Russians don't want statues of Stalin, but there were people in our past that were more problematic, like Robert E. Lee. So he owned slaves. He said he didn't support slavery. He wished it had never existed. He was a he was a magnanimous battlefield commander. I mean, under his command, they didn't kill prisoners or stuff like that. So he and he was aristocratic gentleman. So we kind of said, you know, we're going to name American tank after Lee or something. But after George Floyd, all that went out the window. So we said, we're going to make a commission. And I think that was in a defense appropriations bill. And then Lloyd Austin was in charge of accepting or rejecting the, the recommendations. And they, they go the gamut. As you said, there's statues, there's paintings, portraits, and there's names of bases. But they're all, anybody who's a Confederate is out. Now, in the case of some of them are going to be problematic because I think Fort Hood, Texas has got the, it's the largest active base that we have. And so you're going to have to change all those names. Okay, we can get with that. But, and I, I don't really mind that because John Bell Hood was not a very good general if, if you were a Southerner. He was kind of a tragic figure. He lost an arm. He lost a leg. You know, Sherman was very kind. Sherman fought him on the Atlanta campaign. And he was a terrible general. He was a diehard Confederate. So I don't know what the purpose of is to continue. I have no problem with that. And maybe the same thing is true of Fort Bragg. Braxton Bragg was a braggart, a bra brag braggart. <laughs> and he was a race. And he was a slave owner. And he was an incompetent. So if you want to rename that Fort Liberty or whatever. And then you go down most of the Confederate bases with very, I think of the, of the 10, I think you can make the argument that seven or eight should be changed. No problem. But you should be aware of why you're doing it now because you're in hysterical, frenzied mood. That's one thing. And number two, there's Confederate generals and then there's Confederate generals. I mean, Nathan Bedford Forrest was a genius. But he was also a slave trader and inveterate racist. He did repent before he died, to be fair to his memory. But, you know, you can argue over Fort Pillow, but you could make the argument that he allowed or ordered either one people to kill African, single out African-American prisoners in Union uniforms. So you don't want a picture of Nathan Bedford Forrest, maybe in modern American. But what do you do with James Longstreet? He was kind of a old Tidewater Virginian. He didn't believe in slavery. I don't think he had slaves or very few. He was very moderate. Uh, after the war, they hated him in the South because he was a strong advocate of reconciliation. And he worked for the federal government. He helped uh, with Reconstruction. Is he guilty, too? You see what I'm saying? There's yeah. It's, it, it, there's gradations, but there's no gradations in the way they're doing it. Mm -hmm. And then, so that's that's an issue. And then you have to ask, well, why did they have all these bases in the first place? There's no historical 
context? Well, the context is this wasn't some right-wing Republican. It was right at the, when World War One broke out, there were people in the U.S. Congress who said, you know what, whether we like it or not, we're going to get involved. And we don't have an army, and we haven't had any, and we had a little one in the Spanish-American War, but we have no training facilities, We and how are we going to rearm? So this started to build up by 1915-16. We got in in April 17 uh, to get Southern support in the Congress, and because land was much cheaper in, in a still devastated South, just 50 years after, 55 years after the Civil War, there was the idea, well, we're going to make this, get all this land in the South, and we're going to let the Southern legislatures and governors name these bases, and therefore the Southern Democratic bloc will vote for all of these defense expenditures because they're going to be in their districts. And that's how they popped up all around. And so it wasn't like you know, I mean, it was a choice between having no bases and bases. If you want to have bases and you and you don't have the money, or maybe you want you want cheap land, you want it where in the south where the weather is warm. You don't want to base up in Upper Michigan, right, or Wyoming, or Montana. Sure. How can you drill in February? So the point was, they needed a warm climate. They needed cheap land. The South had it. The South was economically depressed. They wanted the revenue from the bases. And for national reunion, they said, okay, we'll vote for it. And then you let us name it. And that's how we got to where we are. So yeah. yes, in some cases, I think it's good to rename the bases. And then the que- there's another question, who do you rename them after? So I thought when they were going to rename them, we would have, we would just go through the pantheon of uh, American generals, right? That's what they do. You're taking generals' names off. And I thought we'd have Fort Patton, Fort Matthew Ridgway, Fort Ulysses S. Grant, Fort William Tecumseh Sherman, maybe, huh? Yeah. Uh, Fort Hap Arnold, you know, stuff like that. But we don't. I mean, I can see there, I think there's going to be a Fort Eisenhower, but Fort Liberty, but they're named, and the people they're named are very outstanding Americans, but they're mostly. Marginal, I guess the people of color, marginalized group. I mean, it's a politically correct effort to find obscure people who were not appreciated and who had very heroic lives. But I mean, these are the type of people you put statues on or in the, how you name things iconically or eponymous uh, portraits, walkways, roads, but you don't name a whole base over somebody you never heard of. And it's not always you never heard of because you're a racist society. I mean, whether you like him or not, William Tecumseh Sherman and Ulysses S. Grant saved the United States. Whether you like him or not, Matthew Ridgway saved the entire American effort in Korea. Korea. Whether you like him or not, you can make the argument that George Patton saved the entire Normandy thrust in August of 1944. But, But there's none of that. So it's a politicized extension of the George Floyd, post-George Floyd uh, woke. And in some cases, if you disagree with woke, it doesn't mean that every element of wokeism is always wrong. Because, as I said in the beginning, I don't think there's an argument to be made to continue honoring Braxton Bragg 
and uh, John Bill Hood, and even General Gordon and others. But uh, another thing I think is um, very important, if you want to go down this road, and I mean, you want to take the present standards and you want to apply them to the past, and you're seeking perfection rather than the totality of a person's contribution, and you have no sensitive sensitivity to how they resonate in particular communities, and you got to be very careful. So we have hundreds of schools and places named after iconic uh, reformers. What do you do with Malcolm X school? Is somebody going to say, you've named that school in New York or somewhere after Malcolm X. Malcolm X was a convicted felon. Malcolm X advocated in, he had, he, he said that he considered killing white people. And he, until the very end, he advocated basically a race war. And who's the most iconic person we have in every town on Martin Luther King Boulevard? Or is somebody going to come along and say, wait a minute, it's the year 250, 2050. And you're naming Martin Luther King. He's a plagiarist. He plagiarizes, he plagiarizes PhD thesis. And yeah. we're told by Ralph Abernathy, shortly before he was killed, he was hitting women. He was a womanizer. He degraded women. He used physical force against them. And so what I'm saying is the old argument, yes, but he was a great American. He, he saved race relations at, at that particular time from becoming too violent. And his own personal shortfallings are in the on the ledger, on the negative side, but on the positive side, they outweigh them. And that's how we adjudicate people. But we don't do that anymore. You see, we do it one-sided. And yeah. I could add to that Woodrow Wilson. I mean, I guess they agree with me because they took his name down at the Wilson School at Princeton. But, I mean, we would have had an integrated uh, military by 1917 if it had been, hadn't been for Woodrow Wilson. He was just an out-and-out out eugenicist racist. And, you know, okay, he had some good qualities, and but under woke doctrine, you don't, you don't balance A and B. You just say, if B is negative, cancel him out. Same thing with the icon of left, Margaret Sanger. She was a eugenicist. And I could go further, Sammy. Get into the whole abortion thing. There is a direct line from Margaret Sanger all the way to Ruth Bader Ginsburg of uh, the idea of abortion as a way to curb the populations of you know, people you don't want. And somebody's saying, Victor, I'm going to report you to Stanford University. You just said what Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Go look it up. Go look at an interview she gave to a, I think, a New Yorker magazine reporter when she said, I don't really know what the big problem is. I thought we were kind of aborting the people that we wanted to, that needed, you know, the right people. To be the right to. people, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they tried to <laughs> smother. She said that. That was pretty scary. Mm. So what I'm getting at is I get really tired, uh, even though I agree with people sometimes that they, they come to decisions. I got really tired of all these generals, Stanley McChrystal saying, you know what, I just loved Robert E. Lee. I was so deluded. And then all of a sudden it hit me that he was a racist. So I just took up that picture on the wall and I threw it down and I stomped them. And then I got rid of it. And of course, he has a lot of contracts as a military advisor, leadership advisor, corporate guy. And my point is, you mean you didn't even know anything about Lee all these years? You worshipped him? You didn't know that he owned slaves, that he was accused of whipping them? I'm not sure that's true. 
And that he excused that because his whole bankrupt family, the Lee family, based on his father's excessive spending, the revolutionary light horse Harry Lee, he thought he couldn't emancipate slaves or his whole family would die. Or so, so he said, read Alan Grelzo's new biography of Lee. It's very good. But my point again is that I just can't take this sudden come to Jesus moment. You know what I mean? At a, an yeah, I do. Time. And look at uh, somebody I really admire, David Petraeus. He was one of the pe- people I, I portrayed in the Savior Generals as a general who saved you know, for a while, the Iraq War. And he came out and said, you know, I've been at Fort Bragg all my life. And and I and all of a sudden, I thought, well, I haven't been at Fort Bragg all my life. But I think at about the age of 12, I, I knew who Braxton Bragg was. I read about the Battle of Shiloh. I read that almost everywhere there was a Southern, a Southern um, general president if he was around they lost <laughs> he was totally incompetent he was a mean sob he was stubborn and i didn't have to be there for you know off and on for 30 years like you were general so you should <laughs> apparently i don't quite believe you that you really didn't know who braxton bragg was and if you really thought he was so bad you want to change the name why didn't you do it 10 years ago and you yeah. didn't do it 10 years ago because you would have never got promoted if you went before a board and somebody said, well, that that Colonel Petraeus, I'm not going to promote him. He wants to change the name of Fort Bragg. But now with the public opinion radical, then, yes, you piggyback on it. And I, I don't like that. I'd rather have yeah. somebody say non-hick pork is not this pig. I'm going to say what I want. Mm-hmm. So I got really upset of all of these military people. Suddenly, oh, my God, Sammy, I didn't know. Robert E. Lee owns slaves. Oh, my God. Braxton Bragg was a racist. Can you believe that? My beloved Fort Hood, John Bell Hood, I thought he lost a leg or something. Wow. He was a mediocrity. And they only made the name so they could get the money from the Northerners. (laughs) And they had the base. And wow. I, I just can't believe all this. And it's now, you know. It's June 2020, and I just learned. I don't believe that. I really no, don't. I'm I sorry. Don't. I think, and so yeah. they had a commission, and they recommended the names, and then Lloyd Austin, who we know, assured us that there was going to be no, there was going to be no uh, problem in Afghanistan. Everything was perfectly all right, as Joe Biden, his commander in chief, said. Uh, in between his lectures to the American people while under oath to Congress, that white rage and white privilege he was going to hunt out. That's where we are in the whole issue. That's a depressing thing to end on. But. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, well, I mean, it's not depressing in some ways. I mean, at times you're, I mean, it, sometimes it comes time to change things. It does. And that, it does. And, and they were named as they were in the context of World War One and the need to bring the South in and use that land. And, and that worked. And now, you know. But it's one way. That's the problem yeah. I have. So yeah. you, uh, you know, you you don't apply, as I said, the same standards to Malcolm X school. Yeah. Uh, and you don't you don't um, you know, we have I have no problem with Cesar Chavez Boulevard. But Cesar Chavez, I mean, 
come on. <laughs> he was a member of Synanon, or he used Synanon. He, the Robert F. Kennedy Health Fund was bankrupt, and he sent people down to the border to physically restrain people from crossing in a way that would really get him uh, in trouble. And, I, you know, just to finish, remember that, I think it was in Salinas, where there was this element. Oh, yeah, the school walking, uh, what was Marietta? No, it was the other one. I mean, walking Marietta was kind of a folk hero compared to, I think his name was Vasquez. Mm -hmm. Vasquez, remember they changed that beautiful school. It was Montebella, you know, the beautiful mountain. And they changed it to Vasquez School after a thief, criminal, horse who was hanged. That made yeah. him, and you know, nobody's going to say, "Oh, how dare you do that?" So, <laughs> so that's what we're. You're right. You're right. So, so I mean, sometimes. So yes, let's not have. And getting back to this whole issue, I admired Ken Burns, the Civil War. Of all the things he did, that was by far the best. Yeah. Because it was tragic. It was not like baseball or the West or the other ones he did that were more melodramatic. In other words, they had a deductive point. I'm going to point out this. And it was usually a, a left-wing point. And then the material was geared to follow an agenda to a predetermined point. That wasn't true of the first one, the Civil War. That was a tragic view. He was trying to show people that there were good men on the southern side that were trapped because they grew up with their families or churches or communities and they had an evil institution that only three percent of the households participated in now they may have benefited indirectly but i think they suffered indirectly because it destroyed the middle class in the south chattel slavery yeah as a yeah. lot of, you know eugene genovese pointed that out years ago and I think uh, Professor Stamp from Berkeley, or was it? He he did the same thing. So my point is that when you looked at the Civil War, when you had Shelby Foote, Southerner, he gave some very beautiful analyses. And we had African-American, we had everybody. And the whole point was Mary Chestnut's diary, very, you know, poignantly read, and the music, Southern music, not just not ju not just Negro spirituals, but also poor white Southern music. The whole the whole complexity was pretty good, and that's the way it should be, because history is not melodrama. It's not so easy. But these people no. these people today these people are are fellow Americans. I mean, they want melodrama. They want yeah. They want psychodrama. They do not want to think about the tragedy that that's entailed. With a, yeah. with somebody like James Longstreet or Robert E. Lee, yeah, and they don't believe in tolerance. You know, it's just no. They don't believe in forgiveness. They don't believe in any of that, and they have the self righteousness that they're always going to be right. And this present moment is so superior. Yeah, and they have. Uh, they don't look humanism. at their own crimes. They don't look no, at their own. Crimes. Fifty years from now, nobody's going to. They have no idea that people are going to say to them. Wow, you people had the technology to see a fetus, a baby, moving around as a human being, and you had the technology to make sure that life could could survive, survive out the womb, and you killed it, mm -hmm. and you did that a million times some years, and and you didn't do anything about it, and then when people tried to stop it, you made fun of them and you called them names and you did all of this, and 
you've got over a million people living on the streets in your sophisticated society. You shut down your mental hospitals and you did this, but it was really a cheap way out. You just didn't want to spend the money and you didn't want to go see Gramps every other weekend and have him crap on the floor while you were talking to him. So you just let them all open up. You didn't want to go Wonder. see your brother-in-law up in Stockton or Sonoma that was crazy and was screaming out the yell out the window. So you said, I don't care. Let him go out in the street. And so that they're going to judge us very, very harshly. They really are. They are. Yeah, exactly. Well, Victor, we've come to the end of our time here. So I would like to thank you for everything you do. And I'd like to thank the listeners for um, being, you know, our our loyal supporters. It's been really good. I, I heard from um, one of our web workers that we had a sterling week at the website um, with over on one day, almost 20,000 people came to it. So that's, that's that was good. a new watermark for you. So thanks to all the listeners and thanks to everybody that comes to Victor's website, victorhanson.com. It's called the blade of Perseus. Um, and I'll hand it over to you to finish up, Victor. Well, thank you, everybody. This week, I did write about uh, Queensland Healers, Australian cattle dog, the most frustrating and yet uh, wonderful dog in the world, the ambiguities, the tragedies of owning, <laughs> a yeah. tragedies of being one, half dingo <laughs> and half what else, some type of Australian collie or shepherd. But nevertheless, I have that, and then I also had, uh, I have a a longer series that came out about the line, 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 line that's institutionalized. So, so every day there'll be um, either a published work, but then three times every week there'll be seven to eight hundred words that appears nowhere else. It has to have a you have to be a subscriber, and it's only five dollars a month. Yeah, but I, t I take it very serious. I haven't missed one day I think since I started over well over a year ago. Yeah. I was thinking the other day that, you know, 3,000, oh, some of them are 800, some of them are 700, but say 800, 2,500 a week, and uh, you get up to 10,000, you know what I mean, a month, in 12 yeah. months, it's 120,000 words, that's uh, a book and a half, yeah, or a book and a least. quarter. Yeah, so uh, it's a lot of work, but I like doing it, and I hope the, the subscribers do too, and with that... But that, yeah, and um, I would like to um, remind, oh, this is the Friday news edition, and we'll be back on Saturday with a cultural edition, and we're going to be looking at whether or not to go to universities, uh, white rage that is out there, and also one of your articles, the coup we never knew, and, and then we'll maybe we'll take a little time with Turkey. So that will be the Saturday edition, and this should be out Friday. So thank you, everybody, for listening. And this is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hansen, and we're signing off. Thank you. Hey there, it's Amanda Head, and I am thrilled to introduce to you my new exciting podcast, Furthermore, with Amanda Head, broadcasting weekly from sunny Los Angeles, California, and brought to you by the Dynamic Just the News Podcast Network. On this fresh and engaging podcast, I delve into the latest news with a little bit of a twist, exploring the furthermore of every story. But this isn't your typical run-of-the-mill news commentary or politically charged program. I interview a diverse range of guests, including business leaders, entertainers, musicians, 
educators, experts, politicians, and many influential figures from both the United States and around the world. So why not make your Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays a little more interesting? Tune in on your preferred podcast platform and discover furthermore with Amanda Head on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And don't forget to hit that follow or subscribe button and be sure to download the latest episodes. I can't wait to have you join me on this exciting journey. 